Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sarah Dowdy. And I'm Dublina Chakraborty. And today we're going to be talking about a very famous children's book and the author of that book, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. And his most famous work, of course, The Little Prince, starts off with a pretty funny, memorable scene involving a, a boa and thwarted artistic talent. But from there, it quickly cuts to the main action of the story. There's a pilot narrator and he's crash landed in the Sahara Desert. He's all by himself, and he has an engine to fix, and he only has one week's worth of water. And we're going to pick up with uh, a little quote from that scene. The first night, then, I went to sleep on the sand, a thousand miles from any human habitation. I was more isolated than a shipwrecked sailor on a raft in the middle of the ocean. Thus, you can imagine my amazement at sunrise when I was awakened by an odd little voice. It said, If you please, draw me a sheep. What? Draw me a sheep. <laughs> that's, that's the little prince, of course. Actually, it's Dublino, but <laughs> playing the little prince. Playing the part of the little prince. And luckily for our story, um, the book, in addition to being part extraterrestrial, because the little prince is not from planet Earth, he's from an asteroid, um, the book is also part autobiographical. And Saint-Exupéry really did crash land. In fact, he crash landed quite a few times. Most, a lot. Most famously in the Libyan desert. Um, but we're going to talk a little bit about that adventure and 
few other things, too. Yeah, his career as a male pilot and his mysterious disappearance over the Mediterranean, because for all the simplicity and the gentleness of the little prince, its author was actually a very reckless man. Yeah, and it caught up with him eventually, unfortunately. Um, but we'll start at the beginning. He was of the minor nobility and born kind of impoverished minor nobility. I mean, it, uh, the perfect beginning for a story like this, I'd say. He, his name was Antoine-Marie Roger de Saint-Exupéry, and he was born June 29th, 1900, in Lyon. And um, as a side note, this was a listener-suggested topic. Somebody named Mike uh, brought it up to us. And he, in his email, he mentioned that he thought that Saint-Exupéry was about the coolest name anybody could have. And Saint-Exupéry apparently thought so himself. He called it un bon nom, which means a lovely name. And he even tried to prevent other female family members who shared the name, such as his wife and his sister, from publishing under it, which they did anyway. So sorry. So he at least has the self-esteem of nobility, if not the wallet, <laughs> not the money the pocketbook. He missed World War I service by literally one day because he came of age one day after armistice, but he still really yearned his whole life for a military career. Yeah, but he failed his entrance exam. He was not a very good student. He failed his entrance exam to the Navy school and instead entered a light cavalry uh, regiment as a civilian conscript. And it's interesting, but from there, he ended up flying. And it, it doesn't... It doesn't seem like the easiest path in any way. He really, really wanted to fly. He'd been flying in planes for about as long as a person could fly in planes at this point. His first ride was in 1912 in a Bertold Robloski metal monoplane. I tried to find more information about that plane and pronunciations as well, but um, I think it's a pretty rare early plane indeed. But according to an article in Aviation History, the French weren't allowing civilian conscripts without previous flight experience to train as pilots. So this is where his position as minor nobility comes in. Someone had to pull some strings for him and actually managed to get Saint-Exupéry flying lessons with an ex-pilot from the German army who hadn't really even trained a student before. So it was all very sketchy. Private private flying lessons indeed. This was all while he was in service too, so that's you know. Yeah, he, he actually went over to the civilian side of the airfield to take his private pilot's lesson so he could get around this restriction and he does you know, start to build up hours and learn how to fly and he became a military pilot. He flew fighter planes and he got transferred to Morocco as an official flight trainee and kept practicing there. He'd fly solo over the desert to Casablanca and I mean, that's sort of his first time on these long solo flights where, I mean, that, that sort of defines who he is. If you if you read many of his works or, or look at his biography much, long stretches of solitude flying over the desert. But by 1922, he's earned enough hours to get his pilot's license. And it seems like up until this point, it's been kind of unconventional, but pretty auspicious, too. You know, he certainly had luck on his side. Seems like a good beginning for a life spent in the air. That doesn't last very long. Within a year, he has his first big crash outside Paris while flying a plane that he wasn't even rated to fly. He was grounded temporarily after that. But then 
something else happens. His fiance decides to make this a more permanent arrangement and convinces him to quit flying, which he does, although unfortunately the relationship doesn't last. It ends pretty soon after that. But Sonic Superi ends up working odd jobs. He works as a bookkeeper, a mechanic, a traveling salesman for a truck manufacturer, does a bit of writing too. Um, but basically not flying for a time. He's not flying. And, and just a note before we move on from her, his fiance was actually Louise Levesque de Villemorin, who was a future novelist still at this point. And she wrote Madame de, which is kind of awkward to say out loud, that title. Imagine ellipses after Madame de. Um, but that was, of course, adapted into the film Earrings of Madame de. Also, ellipses Awkward there. Awkward to say, yes. <laughs> uh, which is a really cool movie. If, if um, any of y'all are looking for something new on your Netflix queue, it's an interesting, kind of disturbing movie. And I think it's cool. She had a connection to Santa Exupery. Yeah, but as we said, that connection doesn't last. So by 1926, he is back up in the air, this time as a commercial pilot, though. Hoping to be one. Yeah, hoping to be one. But unfortunately, it was 1926, and no one really wants to fly at this point. Yeah, it's kind of terrible. It's dangerous and cold and loud. <laughs> yeah, so airmail was a better business to be in. So Santic Superi is hired by a former fighter pilot to work for a company that's called Aeropostel. Eventually called Eventually that. called Aeropostel, even though he doesn't really have that much experience. So he starts out as a mechanic and starts working his way up the ladder. He works his way up to piloting, and he starts pioneering routes in Northwest Africa, South the South Atlantic, and South America. In Africa, he works as station chief, and then in Patagonia, he becomes operations director. So, you know... So, I mean, he's working his way up. He's doing well for himself. And it's interesting that even though some of those sound a little more like desk jobs and maybe they could have been operations director. I don't know. He's still always in the air. I mean, he always takes time to fly. And and again, all those hours flying over the desert, flying over the mountains, I mean, things that really add to his mystique and give him fodder for later books, too. I mean, all that time spent looking at things and thinking. Uh, in fact, his his first novel, which was published in 1929, and its English title is Southern Mail, was about an airmail pilot. And his second book, published in 1930, called Night Flight, was about just sort of the glamorous but risky life of, of pilots. And he did embrace those risks still, too. I mean, you'd think that with this new responsibility, new amount of responsibility he has, he might tone it down a little. Um, not the same Santa Exupery who is flying planes he wasn't rated to fly in. He's still reckless, according to, again, that article in Aviation History. Mechanics really liked him. They liked hanging out with him, reading his stuff, talking with him, playing cards with him. <laughs> but they preferred not to fly with him when, you know, lots were drawn or whatever, who was going to go with Santa Exupery. Yeah, that really says it all. But rather than getting better, I guess, getting less reckless, it only gets worse when he leaves Aeropostale eventually because the company goes bankrupt. Yeah, he goes to work. I, I think Air France buys a little bit of Aeropostale, and he works as a test pilot for Air France, and then as sort of a PR guy for the airline because he has had successful publications, and he's a well-known pilot by this point. Um, he even does some work as a reporter. But it's in 1935 that 
he embarks on his next really bold enterprise. And it's an enterprise that helps inspire his next major book, which is the 1939 National Book Award winner, Wind, Sand, and Stars. And even later inspires that that scene we opened with in The Little Prince. Um, it's not a good... Um, not a good scene, though. Not one you'd really want to live out in real life. No, it's rather scary, actually. He gets a hold of another monoplane. This one is a Cadron Simon, which Simon means sandstorm. And he attempts to set a record by flying from Paris to Saigon. And the prize for this would be 150,000 francs. Somehow, though, on this incredible journey, he ends up, along with his navigator mechanic, Andre Prevost, crashed in Libya. So Libya. I mean, come on. Pretty, of all places. <laughs> yeah. Pretty bad situation. They don't have provisions or anything like that. Um, Just a little bit of wine, I think. Yeah. Chocolate grapes. or something like yeah. that. Not much at all. Luckily, though, they're rescued by Bedouins. Yeah. And only three years later... He crashes yet another one of these little planes in Guatemala while he's trying to fly the length of North and South America. He starts somewhere in North America that is is nowhere near the length of the continent. But anyways, I mean, your record's not going to hold if you if you crash land anyway. So, um, you know, those kind of experiences just, again, fuel his his legend and his fame a little bit, even though that second crash, the one in Guatemala, badly, badly injures him. I, I guess the, the first in Libya wasn't quite as bad because they crashed into a sand dune. Um, but he was a little more battered on the second one. Yeah, neither of them sound pleasant, but the second one actually ended his flight career. Commercial flight career. His commercial flight career. He does rejoin the French Air Force briefly before the Nazis occupy the country, but luckily Saint-Exupéry escapes. But where does he settle? New York City, of all places. And this is a secret that's kept for him by the War Department. He wanted, actually at that point, to join the U.S. Air Force, but he's rejected because of his age. He's getting up in years at this point. He's 40 years old. Not really a common age for a fighter pilot. Um, but he has a comfy-sounding life in New York City. I mean, it, it, I'm amazed that, um, that he doesn't end his days there, but he and his wife Consuelo lived there from January 1941 to April 1943, and they worked on drumming up support for the war. He was really trying to get the United States involved and, um, milling about with the Lindberghs, you know, having a, a pretty, glamorous life. And it's even possible that the Lindbergh son, who was a, a little blonde boy named Land, was the inspiration for the Little Prince character. And um, the Santa Exuperis were living at 240 Central Park South penthouse. So comfy digs. He liked the penthouse because he's way up in the air. And he likes New York, too. He he apparently really enjoyed going to the Empire State Building and tossing little scraps of paper off the top or out the windows or something and watching them float down. Uh, he's he's having a good time. Sounds like a great life. But even to get away from Manhattan sometimes, he and his wife stayed as guests at the Bevan House in Asheroke in Long Island. And that's where he wrote The Little Prince. And he also painted and studied English. Um, which I basically I think, hung out. I think that's kind of a surprise to a lot of people. It was a surprise to me that The Little Prince was 
written in the United States. And I, I even found an interesting article in the New York Times about Antoine de Saint-Exupéry literary tours, because in a way he is a New York writer, because his famous, most famous work was written here, and, uh, or not here, in the United States. Um, I, I think that's so cool to have somebody like that. You can go tour New York and, and see little spots he visited, not someone you associate with New York at all. No, not at all. But after he finished the book, he ends up leaving, and I know you can't believe this, Sarah, he leaves this wonderful dream of a life he has in New York, hanging out in his penthouse, throwing pieces of paper off the Empire State (laughs) Building, and he rejoins the French Free Air Force. He really wants to get involved in the war and help out with the war effort. Patriotic, and he loves flying. Exactly. So he joins up with the French Air Force in North Africa, and he starts... The Free French Air Force. The Free French Air Force. We have the Vichy regime going on in France. Exactly. And he starts flying reconnaissance missions for the Allies. At this time, he's 44 years old, he's overweight, and he's just really beaten up from the crashes that he's endured. Yeah, I mean, think of all of the different crashes and the toll that would take on a middle-aged man. I mean, he has trouble even getting into a plane at this point, let alone spending hours all stiff and buckled in in a, in a cold cabin. And um, It really took the full power of his fame and influence to get him back in the cockpit. And I mean, he's had strings pulled for him for his entire career. But I mean, I think this is the, the big one here that gets this guy back in a plane. But he he does, you know, and he does start flying again. And on July 31st, 1944, he takes off from Corsica on this photo mapping mission. He's in a Lockheed P-38 Lightning and he never comes back. And that's kind of where our big mystery starts. He's, of course, presumed dead. And for many years, there were a lot of theories about what exactly happened. I mean, after after Amelia Earhart, I, this is probably one of the big aviation mysteries of our time. Yeah, definitely. There were several possibilities. Could it have been suicide? He did go through a lot of trouble to be in this dangerous situation, and he was known to be depressed. So there are some chances that maybe this was just an elaborate suicide attempt. Some people think that. It's also possible that he may have mishandled the plane or perhaps miscalculated how much fuel he had and, and just crashed. He could have also maybe passed out from lack of oxygen, Unlikely, this scenario is unlikely since oxygen was the one thing Sonic Subaru was famously very careful about. I think that's kind of funny, too. Um, not in this situation, but that he was so careful about oxygen. Yeah, and reckless about everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, there's the possibility that he was shot down. So for years and years after his death, this is sort of what we were left with, figuring out what it could have been and knowing that we probably would never know. Then in 1998, new clues started trickling in. And it started when fishermen off of Marseille found a silver bracelet with his name engraved on it and a scrap of his flying suit. And Divers started checking the area nearby, you know, looking for for anything else. And they found remains of a Lockheed P-38 Lightning. And there was no body inside, no body anywhere near. But the serial number of the plane matched that of the plane Sonic Zuberi was known to be flying. Yeah, but it was weird. There was no evidence of bullet holes or bent propeller or any other sign that it had been shot down. So 
a little bit of a discovery. Well, a big discovery, but still, still mystery. We didn't exactly know what happened. So in 2005, there was another interesting discovery. Two divers decided that um, they had noticed this wreckage nearby the St. Exupery crash site a few years earlier, and they decided, okay, let's go check that out. And after going through a bunch of red tape, getting permits and everything, they finally do, and they and they dive in and see what's down there. And interestingly, there is another plane down there. Yeah, what they found down there was a Daimler-Benz V-12 aircraft engine that, when reviewed by experts in Munich, turned out to be part of a Messerschmitt flight fighter plane flown by Prince Alexis von Bentheim und Steinfurt. And this was a 22-year-old German pilot shot down by Americans in 1943 when he was on his first solo flight. A so, prince. I a mean, prince of all things. I mean, a young prince. So one of the divers who helps lift out this engine, named Lino von Gartzen, runs with this new clue and starts hitting the archives, working with the staff of a magazine for Luftwaffe vets, and find, tries to find pilots who flew with the prince. Yeah, and he makes 1,200 calls to these Luftwaffe vets and to their families because, of course, the surviving ones are in their 80s and many have, have died since then. Um, and finally, he contacts the former pilot, Horst Rippert, and Rippert tells him, quote, you can stop searching. I shot down Saint-Exupéry. This is amazing. I mean, this is an amazing revelation, but there's no proof of that it actually happened since the German flight logs didn't make it through the war. Yeah, usually a losing side, of course, this late in the war, too. They're not keeping really great records. Right, but actually it's not that outrageous a tale, right? Not really, because, I mean, his story, he, he says, I didn't see the pilot. I never could have seen the pilot. But um, he he does have a story that, that adds up, pretty much. Um, his fighter squadron had been alerted to a group of reconnaissance planes in the area, and he found a Lockheed P-38 with, with a French with French colors on it, and shot it down. He didn't see the pilot. Um, but he did note and remember these strange, evasive loops that the pilot made trying to get away from him. And then a few days later, he heard that Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was missing, and he had this horrible, sinking suspicion that he might have killed him. Yeah, and here's the really sad part about that. He also admits that Saint-Exupéry had been his hero, a writer that he read in school and the person who inspired him to fly in the he first was place. In his early 20s when this happened. He even said, according to Sonic Supery's great nephew and family spokesperson, that if he had known what he was doing, he never would have done it. So, I mean, a, a very sad and, and interesting story. And maybe, you know, I guess, again, we're never going to know for sure, but it's certainly, um, certainly a fascinating conclusion for now to this mystery. Yeah, and at least an interesting possibility out there. Well, and to know that at the very least this man who shot down a P-38 in 1944 is haunted and has been for his entire life by the idea that he might have killed his his hero. It's tragic. It is. So, Sonic Subaru, we now know he died at age 44, just as a little prince once described seeing 44 sunsets in one day, and the book went on to become by far his most famous. Yeah, probably most of you have read it, whether 
as kids or in class or maybe to your own kids or at least looked at the pictures. I mean, that I think that's always been my favorite part of The Little Prince, the, the baobabs and the boas and the rose, of course. Um, today, this is kind of interesting. I was just reading a New Yorker article about asteroid strikes, potential asteroid strikes on Earth. And there is a private foundation that is dedicated to protecting the Earth from asteroid strikes. And appropriately enough, it is named the B612 Foundation after the Little Prince's home asteroid, where he's he's cleaning out his volcanoes every day. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Just to end it off here, there's a quote that we have from Anne Morrow Lindbergh on her friend, Saint Exupery. And she says, how is it possible that he kept his mind on the gas consumption while pondering the mysteries of the universe? How can he navigate by stars when they are to him the frozen glitter of diamonds? And I think I, I really like his appreciation of of solitude. And um, I don't know, just flying over the desert alone and having all that time to to think and, and ponder, not having radar and all these instruments and things. Um, one of his biographers, Stacey Schiff, even mentioned that it's kind of difficult for any biographer of his to, to look at his life completely because it's quite possible that the most important hours and moments were spent thousands of feet above Earth and nobody can really touch that, you know? Yeah, it's, it makes you wonder what he would have written he had lived. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, I guess that about wraps it up for Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I'm kind of interested in going out and looking at some of his other books now. I've only read The Little Prince and I'd be interested to read some of his more memoir type writings, especially the Wind, Sand and Stars. Yeah, same here. Yeah, that was one, I, I think it was National Geographic rated him very high or rated that book very high. Like three, at the very least top ten for best adventure books. So that sounds right up my alley for for some fun springtime reading. And um, if you have any Saint-Exupéry recommendations, things you have read by him, or any other author biography recommendations, after all this was a listener suggestion, feel free to to send us an email at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. We're also on Twitter at Missed in History, and we're on Facebook. And if you would like to learn a little bit more about man's history in flight, we have an article called, What Was Man's First Attempt to Fly? And you can look it up by visiting our homepage at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell 
from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, <laughs> ah, love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, tenor girl go shopping. Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. This is Raquel Willis from Queer Chronicles. Right now, there are close to 500 anti-LGBTQ plus bills in state legislatures across the country. Lambda Legal is leading the charge against these hateful bills that target mostly trans and non-binary people. You can fight discrimination and help write the next chapter of Lambda Legal History. To learn more about their open cases and to donate, visit lambdalegal.org. That's lambdalegal.org.